0: You can open your Bibles up to 2 Samuel chapter 13. 2 Samuel 13, and if you don't have a Bible, just kind of wave at Russ in the back and he'll grab one and bring it up to you. 2 Samuel 13, you can turn there. We'll be there in just a moment. Once you get there, you might want to put a finger in that place and then turn back to the book of Exodus chapter 20. Put your thumb there. we'll get to both those scriptures in just a moment. I was probably five years old when I realized how much I looked like my dad. Exodus chapter 20. The older I've gotten, the more I look like my dad, which I'm not sure if that's a bummer for him or a bummer for me. But I was standing in the guest room of my grandmother's house in McAllen, Texas, and I was looking at pictures of my dad when he was a kid, and I saw a picture of him at my same age, at about the age of five, and I was in awe because it looked like me. In almost every way, I, I thought to myself, Whoa, put a little scar on that lid, and that's me. <laughs> he looked just like me. I mean, the, the hair was the same, that the face, the structure of the face. And it's always been that way. I, I was sitting in a restaurant, I remember, called the Fiddler's Three, that we used to eat at after church on Sundays, just north of where, where we lived in Laguna Hills. we go up to this Laguna Hills mall and go to that restaurant. I remember sitting there with my mom and dad, and, and a couple of ladies coming up to me and saying... Wow, you, you you and your dad, you look so much alike. And at that point, I was just proud to look like dad, you know. And, And dad looked over and said, "Sorry, son," you know. Didn't mean to pass that along. We tend to be fascinated, though, by traits and characteristics that we pass on or that are passed along to us. Traits that we give our own children or traits that we've received from from our parents. We like to say, "He's got your eyes." Which, if you really had your eyes, then you would be blind. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. She's got your nose. He's got your athletic prowess. She's got your brains. Now, I happen to know that my kids got my brains. Because I can't seem to. Since they've been born, I've been dumbing down. That's the only way I can put it. I mumble to myself more often. I can't seem to find my glasses. And then I remember I don't even wear glasses anymore. But God created this marvelous system in each of us, in in our world, involving chromosomes and DNA strands and genes and all this stuff, so that traits from one generation get passed along to the next. And we do see these similarities. We see ourselves in our kids, and our parents see themselves in us. We also, as you may be aware, tend to share emotional traits. Which are more likely the influence of our parents as we're growing up. We, there are things we take in, we don't even know that we're taking in. Behavioral patterns of mom and of dad that, that impact us or affect us. Some of those are very good and some of them not so much. But it's where phrases like, like father like son come from. Or the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Or she's her mother's daughter. Because they act so much like a parent does. Now you probably know all that, but here's the thing. We don't only receive and pass on physical characteristics or emotional traits. We also pass on spiritual traits as well. We leave legacies in our children, the good, the bad, and the ugly. My sin influences my son's. My disobedience impacts my daughter. Our transgressions are seed in the next generation. And whether you have children or not, you are a child. And you know that there are things passed on. Sin traits. Our generations are affected and we affect the next generation in ways we can't even possibly imagine. And you might say, well, come on, Rick, where's that found in the Bible? Psalm 51.5 is a verse that I've been stewing over for the past week. I mentioned this on Wednesday night briefly. David wrote in that psalm, in Psalm 51, is the psalm where David pours out his heart after he is caught following his sin with Bathsheba. His murder of Uriah. David pens this psalm, and probably a year after the fact. We we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 11, I believe it was last week, and the sin of David and Bathsheba and all that went on there, that, that carnage of his lust. And then Wednesday night We looked at chapter 12 Which is the chapter of David getting caught Of Nathan being sent by the Lord to David And telling him I know exactly what you did And that fallout from his sin Didn't happen until at least nine months to a year later But it caught up with him As the Bible says Be sure your sin will find you out When he is caught In 2 Samuel chapter 12 Along about verse 10 or so Well I could look it up He makes this statement to Nathan. He says in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And we talked about that on Wednesday night. It's not much of a statement. I've sinned against the Lord. Wow, big surprise there, David. How about some repentance? How about some confession? How about really owning up to what you did? If we only had that one sentence, I have sinned against the Lord, we wouldn't really know what was in his heart. So Wednesday we went to Psalm 51, which is the outpouring of David's heart about his sin with Bathsheba. It's graphic, it's very specific, and he—he he, you see the repentance. You hear it. You understand that he fell flat on his face in absolute brokenness. But in the midst of that, Psalm 51, verse 5, he makes this statement. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. I couldn't get away from that verse. I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. And when you look at the the construction, specifically the verbs in that verse, in the Hebrew, the construction points to the mother's sin. The father's sin, David's father Jesse, his mother whose name is unknown to us, at least in scripture, in sin David was conceived. And I wonder, does that mean David was illegitimate? Is it possible David was an illegitimate child? There's some interesting hints toward that. We don't know for sure. But did Jesse have a concubine who was not his wife? in sin was David conceived it's interesting when Samuel comes to Jesse and asks to see all his sons that Jesse lines up seven boys who's absent David is Samuel goes through every single one and gets down to the inn and there's no one else and he could walk away except for the fact that Samuel says to Jesse isn't there anyone else because the Lord's not picking any of these boys and Jesse goes oh yeah there's David he's out with the sheep Why is David out with the sheep and the rest of the boys right there, you know, heralded by their father to be maybe the next king? Is it possible that David was shunned in the family? These are just guesses and surmises. I went all over the place trying to find an answer to this. Because David's the only one in Scripture who hints to the fact that he may have been born illegitimately. In sin, my mother conceived me. But there's another possibility that's that's probably a little bit stronger than that. And whether we believe that that was the case or not, really it's beside the point. The other possibility is David said, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me because he is expressing an historical truth. Sin begets sin. Sin begets sin. Exodus chapter 20 In verse 2, right as the Lord launches into the Ten Commandments, He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you... Out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Skip ahead to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. It tells us then the Lord passed by in front of him, that would be in front of Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. There's that word, chesed, grace, loving kindness. Abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on to the grandchildren, to the third and the fourth generations. And we may read that and immediately react and go, so God's blaming the the next generation for the sin of the parents? So God's going all the way to the third or fourth generation to blame them, to visit the iniquity on them, to punish them for the sins of the father and the grandfather and the great-grandfather. Does that sound like grace? Well, listen, a couple of things. We're going to come back to this thought in a little bit. But don't go blaming mom and dad for the current state of your life. Especially don't use scripture to do it. Don't look back at your upbringing, whether it was wonderful and and pastoral and there were flowers and happiness and singing, or it was abusive, or there was molest, or there was hardship brought about by an alcoholic father or mother. Don't go looking back at mom and dad and blaming them for where you stand right now. And parents of grown children don't translate this into guilt over how you personally messed up your kids' lives. The older I get, the easier that concept comes to me. As I look back, my 17-year-old son, and I look back and I think, you know, if I had done this, would this change that? If I had done this, if I had acted this way, would that affect this? And I'm very proud of my 17-year-old son, Corey, don't get me wrong, but anytime something goes wrong in his life or Hannah's life as a 15-year-old or Hayden isn't even an 11-year-old, the thought comes into my mind, what did you do to make this happen? What's interesting is I think that with the bad things. Anytime there are good things, I say, oh, that must be their mother. <laughs> you know? Or praise the Lord, I don't know where he got that. Don't do that, parents of grown children. I'm going to explain this more. But the verse in Exodus 20, Exodus 34 does not mean that God punishes the child for the sins of the parents. Nor does it mean that a son or daughter is predestined to sin in the likeness of their parents. So what does it mean? We'll come back to it. But our story this morning is all about a father, his kids, and a dysfunctional mess conceived in lust. David's lust sin at age 50 with Bathsheba was not the first time. His whole life was a pattern of lusting after women, of bringing women into his household, of wives and concubines. And his children grew up with that. And I hate to tell you this, but I'm going to start right out and say this up front. David was a lousy father. He was a great king. He was a lover of God, unparalleled. A man after God's own heart. But he was a father who stunk. He didn't know what he was doing. So we begin chapter 13 with all that in mind. Verse 1, it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister. Whose name was Tamar. By the way, Absalom was the son of a woman that David married who was... Uh, daughter of a pagan ruler in fact I believe daughter of a pagan priest so there's even marrying outside of Israel happening here so Absalom son of David had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar and Amnon the son of David loved her Who is Amnon, David's firstborn the first son David would have his oldest boy Amnon and he loved Tamar And Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. Now again, this begins that it was after this that Absalom had a beautiful sister. After what? After David's sin with Bathsheba. After the carnage and the fallout and all that we saw happen, this is now the next story. 2 Samuel 13 is the follow-up to the explosion of lust between David and Bathsheba. An explosion that would have generational fallout. And the Lord had already warned David. When he caught him in the sin, when he explained, when he sent Nathan, he told David, this is going to mess up your house for the rest of your life. The sword is going to be in your house. Your son will be against your son. You're going to have even a son in your house who's going to sleep with your own wives. The Lord gives him the complete warning. This is what will happen. Here it begins in chapter 13. Like father lust son. David's firstborn, Amnon, had a thing for his sister Tamar To the point that he was frustrated Now there, there are two directions Kind of, we could have gone with this study this morning A parental direction with David and a lust direction We talked a lot about lust last week We're going to talk a little bit more about lust today As we see it play out in the life of Amnon and In his, and his passionate desire for his sister Now let me at least say this In those days there was as yet no prohibition against a brother and a sister marrying or being in love with each other. That sounds kind of gross to us, especially when you think about your own brothers and sisters. But that would come later when the gene pools began to stagnate <laughs> and uh, family lines began to kind of get corrupted and the Lord would say, okay, it's a bad idea now for a brother to marry a sister because their kids are going to have four eyes and they're going to be strange. Things aren't going to work the way they're supposed Kind of like Irish setters. You know, Irish setters are great dogs, beautiful, sleek, red. I love, I love the look of an Irish setter, but they are dumb as the day is long. If you've ever seen the movie Funny Farm, you you get that picture of the Irish setter in that movie. He's just running. Every time you see him, he's just running across the field. (laughs) You know, I could go off on dumb dogs, but I'm not going to. Because Rod and Barb aren't in here to defend Cosby. why would you say that about that sweet black dog because that sweet black dog won't stay out of my trash (laughs) anyway so family lines corrupted over time and that was when the Lord said okay that's enough stop this but early on that was not a problem for brother and sister to be together I'll tell you this because you need to know the problem is not a prohibition of marriage here for Amnon. He could have married Tamar. He could have asked for her aunt. You'll see this later in the story. The problem is not that Amnon is love sick. The problem is Amnon is lust sick. He's frustrated. He wants her. But he doesn't think he can have her. He wants his cake and eat it too. He, he wants all the pleasure without the commitment we read about David's lust problem in chapter 12 but now we see more graphically the effect and impact of worldly lust and by the way those of you teenagers who are with us I know there are a few here at the early service please understand more often than not when you get into dating relationships it has much more to do with lust than it does with love which is the problem with dating because honestly the guy or the girl most likely the guy is in it for himself not for you Caitlin just going to let you know right now, he's in it for himself. It's about his. It's about how he looks when you're on his arm. It's about he, how he feels when you're together. How can you say that rape? Well, watch this. Verse three. Amnon had a friend whose name was. This whole first four verses are like right out of high school. Amnon's frustrated. Because he wanted her. he had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And then Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. And you're not, you're in lust with her. This word here that that is translated depressed in the Hebrew is dal, which means weak, thin, or skinny. (laughs) Why are you so skinny, man? Why aren't you eating? Why are you so bummed out? Amnon is wasting away because he can't get his lust fed. He's dour and bummed and sad because he can't have Tamar. An unfulfilled lust is often at the heart of teenage angst. I want her, but I can't have her. Because I got this zit on my nose and it's just ruining everything, you know? Proverbs 1430 says, A tranquil heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. I remember being in junior high, and her name was Julie. I wrote my first song ever for her, Julie You're the Girl of My Dreams. <laughs> And I remember being in the hallway and she'd walk by and I just oh. I'd be weak. And, and here's how lust works. I just I just wanted to be with her. I wanted my friends to see me with her. But five minutes later I'd be in another class, everything would be fine. You know, she wasn't around when I'd seen her be like, oh And that's lust. Several things to jot down if you're a note-taker. Number one, lust is all about self and by the way you can translate this you may be in a place in your life where sexual sin and sexual lust is not an issue it's not a big deal if you're in that place fine there are all kinds of lusts and passions and desires that we have I encourage you to translate it for yourself Lust is all about the self Romans 13-14 Paul said put on the Lord Jesus Christ And make no provision for the flesh In regard to its lust Why? Because lust is 100% self-centered It's all about my taste My desires My wants And our culture is so twisted When it comes to the idea of love Versus lust What does the phrase making love really mean? It's not about making love, it's making lust. It's about fulfilling pleasure. It's about sex. And sex is not love. Oh, I know there's confusion about that. Especially in a sex-saturated culture that is training our kids right out from underneath us to believe that sex and love are one and the same. You watch movies where people have known each other ten minutes and they go to bed and they're making love. No, they're not. They're fulfilling lust. Movies and TV shows are providing this constant streaming download of wrong information into the hearts and minds of this generation. Repeating over and over again, love is a feeling. Love is experienced sexually. Love is passion and romance. We're coming up on Valentine's Day. I heard a commercial the other day on the radio where the guy said, Guys, Valentine's Day is coming. And you want to keep your woman happy. So Purchase, and then he went off. And I'm like... I want to keep my woman happy. Well, that's a great saying there for Valentine's Day. Well, Valentine's Day is pagan anyway, so it probably all fits together. By the way, if you're planning on celebrating Valentine's Day, have a nice time. Just just know that uh, Cupid and all that... What was the other commercial? Find the inner Cupid within. A little, little baby with wings shooting arrows at people, I've got better things to do than find my inner Cupid. I will mention, by the way, Cupid is just... Another variation of a child named Tammuz, son of a woman named Semiramis, married to a man named Nimrod and they were the first to introduce Babylonian paganism and mysticism into the world. So even the Cupid thing is deeply rooted in paganism. But love is not passion, and love is not romance. That's not true. That's not love. That's lust. 2 John 2.16, a verse we read last week. All that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. So what's from the Father? Love is. The world offers you lust. Fulfillment of desire and passion. And you find yourself... Bummed out and depressed and hungry all over again, even when you think your lust is fulfilled, or your so-called love from the world's standards. But the Bible tells us in 1 John 4:8, God is love. Love satisfies, love deepens relationship, love is a good thing. The Bible describes it this way: 1 Corinthians 13:4, love is patient, and love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And love bears all things Believes all things Hopes all things Endures all things Jesus takes it the next step John 15 verse 13 Greater love is no one to miss That one lay down his life for his friends Well Rick how can you say that all teenage romance is less driven Because how many teenagers would give, out, give up their life for their friend That's a hard concept But That's love Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his own love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love. Because love is all about others, while lust is all about self. And Amnon is in lust with Tamar. He's not in love with her. Verse 5 of chapter 13 tells us that Jonadab then said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand. Amazing that no one picks up on what he's doing here. But David doesn't clue in. Why do you want your sister Tamar who was a beautiful girl? Why do you need her to come cook food in your your room for you? That's a little odd, son. David doesn't catch it at all or doesn't choose to. What's the deal, by the way, with this guy, Jonadab? He kind of inserts himself into this story. This guy's what I would call a vicarious sinner. He's sinning through other people. Setting up someone else to sin, he gets the thrill of watching that happen, of being part of it, but not the punishment if there's fallout. He can just step back from it and he's okay. I don't know anything about it. That's weird to me. Huh. I wouldn't have set that up. What was he thinking? Guy's living out his lust like a spectator on the 50 yard line. And there are people like that who love to play the role of the tempter. We have the phrase the devil's advocate. We have, gang, friends who love to play the devil's advocate, who are always bringing in the evil or the wicked or the critical or the negative. Be careful. Well, all my friends are Christian. Be careful. Your friends all may be Christian, they're also all sinners. And so am I. Be careful. Lust, number two in your notes, is an attractor of the tempter. Lust is an attractor of the tempter. It's like the dinner bell in the demonic realm. When someone starts to get some passionate desire for something, ding, 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 ding. Someone's lusting. Gather the troops. Let's go. And Jonadab is there saying, here's how you do it. I can help out. In this story, Jonadab is none other than a picture of Satan, and the way Satan works and tempts. And it's amazing how, when lust gets going, how quickly someone shows up to help it along. How, when you have a negative thought in your mind, how quickly someone comes along to shore that up. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that guy is a jerk. <laughs> well, let me tell you about my relationship with him. Let me tell you about what she did. Oh yeah, yeah. And next thing you know, we're we're harboring. Thoughts against a person we never would have. Lust is an attractor for the tempter, and a Jonadab, a Satan, an adversary, tends to always show up to help our lust along. Ephesians 4.27, Paul said, Don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't give him a foothold. First Peter 5.8, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, if you were in a zoo... And you're just walking down the path in the zoo and you heard people running by going, the lion's loose, the lion's loose, the lion's loose. What would you do? Oh, let's get a hot dog. Uh Let's spread a blanket out on the lawn. Let's just see if he comes by. No, you'd be on the alert. You'd probably get out of the zoo. Uh And this is exactly what Peter says to do. Be on the alert. What the Jonadabs in our lives do is cheer sin on. But when fallout comes, they're suddenly absent. They're suddenly not there to help out. You're going to see Jonadab in this story use the situation for his own advancement. But Amnon trusts his tempter, Jonadab. And so verse 6 tells us, Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. (laughs) Like I said, he wants his cake and eat it too. And then David sent to the house for Tamar saying Go now to your brother Amnon's house And prepare food for him David what are you doing well, I don't know he asked for her Just send her just go So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house And he was lying down And she took dough and kneaded it And made cakes in his sight And baked the cakes And she took the pan and dished them out before him But he refused to eat No, no. And Amnon said have everyone go out from here So everyone went out from him And then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom of her brother Amnon. When she brought them to him, to he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, "No, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this graceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? As for you, you'll be like one of the fools in Israel. Therefore, please, speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However... He would not listen to her since he was stronger than she and he violated her and and lay with her. It's an awful story. True, historically accurate, spiritually shuddering, Amnon, who declares his love for Tamar, now rapes her. She tries to stop him. I do believe in this story. Tamar is 100% innocent. Even when she brings the cakes Into the bedroom She's not thinking He's sick He's ill He's weak This is not This is not a lust He just needs I'm just going to help him eat And he's going to go Drift off to sleep She's not paying attention She's not aware She's innocent Of what's going on She even says If you love me Ask the king For my hand in marriage I'll marry you. Let's just not do the wrong thing. Let's make this... If you love me, let's do the right thing. The opposite happens in male-female relationships. And again, I'm talking to teenagers. If you love me, the guy will so quickly say, you'll do this with me. Show me you love me. And it causes such a mess. Number three in your notes. Lust forcefully abrogates the truth. Lust abrogates the truth Lust forces away Pushes away the truth Lust doesn't want to hear the truth Lust would rather ignore the truth 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3 Says this is the will of God Your sanctification That is that you abstain from sexual immorality That each of you know how to possess his own vessel In sanctification and honor Not in lustful passion Like the Gentiles who do not know God That's the truth I don't know about you But has the Lord changed that position? Not since I last checked That's the truth But lust ignores the truth in favor of the immediate moment. Here's the truth. True love is between a man and a woman. It's found, it's fought for, it's forged in a faithful marriage. That's where true love happens. Outside of that, it is not love. Outside of that, it is lust. Hollywood has lied. Hollywood is Jonadab. Didn't you pick on Hollywood last week? Yeah, because they're so easy to pick on when you're talking about truth. Why is it that the highest grossing movies in our culture That make more money than any other They're rated G And yet Hollywood churns out PG-13 and R-rated movies constantly Why is that? Why not just make them all family friendly If that's where the money is? Because it justifies a lifestyle Writers, directors, and actors Are justifying their own lifestyle In the movies they make Heath Ledger's dead. Star of Brokeback Mountain. A homosexual cowboy movie. Lust, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. And what we see is a culture, a subculture, turning out these movies, justifying their own lifestyle. And you might say, well, Rick, that's awfully judgmental. Well, am I wrong? Is that not true? I have Comcast Internet Service. You just open up the Comcast homepage and it's one sinful act after another all coming out of that into the entertainment industry. And it's sick and it's twisted and we pay 7.58 dollars to go watch them. Don't be surprised that these movies are rated what they are. It's, it's an expression of a lifestyle. Here's the truth, gang. We live in the last days in which we know biblically that people don't want to hear the truth and lust forcefully abrogates the truth. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.3, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. And I'll tell you how you know someone is growing in the Lord, in their relationship with the Lord, in the depth of their spirituality. They will love the word more and more and more. They will wake up in the middle of the night and start quoting Scripture. They will love the Word. The more the Spirit is in your life, the more you will love the Word. I think sometimes we miss that. I think sometimes in our spiritual life we get to a point where we go, okay, good. Now, let's go over here. And the Lord's saying, you... You forgot. Bring this with you. Take this with you. Lust abrogates the truth. What, what are you pointing out here, Rick? Even church or religion can be a lust. Okay. And the more I read about and hear about and look into this whole emergent church movement, the more concerned I become. The more heretical it sounds, and it does. It does worry me, except for the fact, as, as Les Sherald, that God is in control. And I come back to that place of trust in the Lord and go, "Okay, Lord, you know what you're doing. I can't solve all the problems. I need to focus here. I can't solve all the problems in the world. But the Emergent Church Gang is so self-centered in its focus. It is about me and my generation, my personal experience. And when a movement focuses on experience of the self rather than worship of God it's lust driven so in that way even church can be a lust situation well isn't passion a good thing? passion is easily twisted friends David was passionate he loved God with all his heart he writes poetry he is a passionate guy and it was so easy for the devil to take that passion and twist it into sexual lust Well, back to Amnon. We finally see it was all about lust and there's no love in the way he forces aside the truth. Watch how he acts after the fact. He grabs her. He rapes her even after she presents truth to him. And in verse 15 it says, Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred. The hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up and go away. Because it wasn't love in the first place. Lust just begets hatred even after lust is fulfilled because it never does what you think it's going to do. It never gets you where you want to go. Is it possible that all the decrees and warnings against lust and sexual immorality actually come from a tender, compassionate, loving Father who understands these things, who knows how we tick, and who desires for us that we experience love and not lust? He understands lust is about as far away from love as hatred is. By the way, have you ever wondered why violence and anger always tends to accompany rape? How so often when a man rapes a woman, it's brutal. And often ends up in murder itself. Why is that? Because rape rape involves self-loathing. I'm not saying anything to give compassion to the rapist. However, studies show that men who rape women transfer their guilt, their anger, and their shame of what they've done onto the victim. They hate the person that they are victimizing because they hate themselves for what they're doing. Because there is a shred, there is a shred of conscience that says this is sick and wrong. Number four in your notes, lust takes advantage of vulnerability. That's what lust does. Well, I would never never be involved in a rape situation. Maybe not, but would you take advantage of someone who is vulnerable in your your world? Husbands, would you lord it over your wives in a state of vulnerability? Lust takes advantage of vulnerability. It might be a guy taking a girlfriend or talking her into going to bed together only to dump her the next day. Because lust takes advantage of vulnerability. You may have heard this before, women will often use sex to get love. Or at least the feeling of love. Because where the heart of a woman comes from, and I only know this because I married a woman, so I understand a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> but women will use sex to get love. Because that's the desire of a woman's heart, is that security, that, that love, that care. Men, on the other hand, guys tend to use love or the pretense of love to get sex. Oh yes, I love you. I'll love you even more. I'll be even more, I'll be even more faithful to you. And they said that to 14 other women. Both will tend to use what they can get, or use what they can to get what they think they need. Both men and women in, in this situation are wrong. Whether it's a woman using sex to get love from a guy or a guy using love to get sex from a woman both are using what they have to get what they think they need and both are wrong because lust is never fulfilling and any relationship born in lust is destined to die, destined Any relationship born in lust is destined to die. Couples who live together before married before they're married have a drastically higher divorce rate. I believe in the first seven years, the divorce rate among couples who live together first is four times or fourfold higher than those who got married and began living together after they were married. Because the relationship is more about lust than about love. Oh no, it wasn't. When we moved in together, it wasn't about lust, then why did you move in together? What other purpose? Well, we needed to share the bills. Yeah, we buy that. James chapter one verse fifteen says, "When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death." And if you're feeling uncomfortable, that's not my intention. Lust abrogates truth. Lust takes advantage of vulnerability. Verse sixteen, going on, she said to him. So now the rape has happened and he's pushing her out the door and she says, No, because this is wrong and sending me away. It's a greater wrong than the other which you have done to me yet he would not listen to her. Then he called his young man who attended him and said, Now throw out this woman. Throw her out of my presence and lock the door behind her. Now she had on a long-sleeved garment, or a multicolored garment is the other translation, for in this manner the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. So all the virgins had a specific outfit that they wore. And his attendant took her out and locked the door behind her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long-sleeved garment which was on her. She put her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went younger sisters especially listen to this story this is reality don't put yourself in a situation where a guy can grab hold of you and pull you into a place that you truly do not want to go lust only results in heartache and heartbreak how many times have I heard in counseling situations over the years women saying he said he loved me and now he won't even look at me yeah because that's what lust does It begins sounding like love. It ends like hatred. The story is so clear. But the story doesn't end there. Now we look at verse 20. Then Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? But now keep silent, my sister. He's your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. We're not going to talk about it this morning. We'll see it Wednesday night. Absalom is going to wait two years and kill Amnon. So Amnon's sin is going to result in death. But the ball is going to continue rolling from there because once Absalom kills his brother he has to flee and now Absalom begins to set himself up against David. And a sword will not leave David's house it goes from one bad situation to the next from one negative to the next it's the folly of sin and it's the folly gang of David listen to this verse 21 now when king David heard of all these matters he was very angry yeah David is ticked his firstborn son rapes his daughter Tamar she's desolate and another son is, is you know just seething with fury Absalom is and David's angry. Well, so what does David do about it? Nothing. Nothing. He doesn't stand up for his daughter. He doesn't confront his son. He doesn't deal with the situation in the least. Why? Because David, the man after God's own heart, was a lousy father. A terrible dad. Like father... son. Now parents, listen to this. David is hamstrung by his own guilt. David can't punish or discipline or even deal with Absalom because he did the same thing. Or with Amnon, excuse me. He couldn't deal with the sin of Amnon and Amnon's lust because that was David's problem. And so his own guilt keeps him from acting as a father like he should. How can I tell my kids not to when I have? How can I deal with them in this area that I myself struggle with? And number five in your notes, lust arrests training up. Lust arrests training up. Proverbs 22.6 says very clearly to us, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old he will not depart from it. But how can I train up my child in a certain way when I myself have not gone that way? Well, my question to you parents is How can we not train them up in the right way Whether or not we've gone that way Oh but I don't want to be a hypocrite See that's the problem Lust arrests training up My sin, my desires It keeps me from being the kind of parent That I am called to be And this is the deplorable lure of the enemy I believe it's his favorite tactic He reminds you and reminds me of our old sin So that we cannot act in righteousness toward other people Oh wait What are you saying that to her for Don't you remember what you did How can you tell him this Don't you remember where you were How can you speak to these things I'll tell you what If I could not speak About what the Bible says about sin Based on my own sin life I would would never talk on a Sunday morning I could never stand up here And talk to you about sin Because of myself I can't stand up here And say it's out of the purity of my heart That I share everything that I share No it's not It's out of the truth of the word and I stand convicted week in and week out With so many of these things You have to deal with it Sunday morning when you go to lunch I've got to deal with it all week long But we get bound up Hamstrung as it were by our own sin Such that we cannot act in the way we are called to act Toward our own children, toward other people Revelation 12.10 calls Satan the accuser of the brethren. And that's all, by the way, he can do to you. That's all truly Satan can do is accuse you and attempt to paralyze any good that you would do with guilt. Here's the guilt. Here's what you've done. You can't speak to this because this is in your past. And so the iniquity of the Father reaches down to the third and the fourth generation because we're bound by our own sin and cannot stand up for the truth. Man, if I stand up for the truth, what happens if the truth comes out in my own life? If I talk to my children about this particular sin, and they suddenly find out that I committed that when I was a kid, oh no, the truth might come out, so I can't deal with that. Brothers and sisters, let the truth come out. If you struggled with it, let it out. Remember, lust abrogates the truth. But love, and you can jot this down at number 6, love advocates the truth. First Corinthians 13 told us in verse 6, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. And truth is truth. Whether we followed it or not, even if I failed miserably at the very temptation I'm concerned with my son or daughter for, I stand on the truth now. I know the truth now. I have learned through my own failures Now that I might walk with them. Proverbs 16.13, an interesting verse, says, He who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse things. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. He who winks his eyes does so to devise perverse things. He who compresses his lips brings evil to pass. Winks the eye? Yeah, it's the parent saying, Ah, son, it'll be all right. You and your friends want to drink? That's cool. Just do it here. It's all right. I understand because you know I got it. I was, I'm hip. Yeah, I'm cool. I know what's going on. Okay. You want a beer? We'll just, you know, we'll make sure it happens at home. You know, so don't want you out driving. But you know, hey, I was, I was a kid too. Oh, you were, you spend the night at your girlfriend's house? Well, <laughs> probably shouldn't have done that, but I understand. No big deal. Winking the eye. What about compressing the lips? Well, we compress the lips when we don't speak the truth. I keep my mouth shut. I see what's going on with my kids, and I. Why don't you say something? The wife might say, and the husband goes, "Why don't you say something? You going to talk about this?" And so the third, And the fourth, and the fifth generation, the same sin is repeated again and again and again because it is never dealt with, and that's David's problem. That's David's issue. He can't deal with their sin because of his sin. We need the courage to speak the truth in love. Even if it shines light on where we are in our lives. Even if our kids realize that maybe we're not as perfect as we thought we were. We need to speak the truth in love. And here's the good news. I've been changed. I'm not who I was. I'm not the same kid who did the things that I worry about my kids doing. I'm a different person. I have been changed. Jesus Christ alone is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13 age. His truth alone is, con- is constant, and his truth changes me. But he doesn't change. David's angry, and he cannot move because of his own guilt. His paralysis allows further chaos to ensue in his family. Again, because two years from this point in Scripture, Amnon will be dead at the hands of Absalom. Tamar will be desolate the rest of her life. It's a sad, sick, sorry state of affairs in David's family life, and it is messed up from here on out. Now, all that being said, listen, if you feel as though you failed as a parent, you need to listen very closely. Or maybe you feel as though your parents failed you and your family. Or maybe the weight of sin remains heavy in your life. As we began this morning, we read, again, Exodus 20, verses uh, 2 through 6. Let me reread verses 5 and 6. The Lord your God, he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. But again... This does not mean that God punishes the child for the sins of the father. Nor does it mean a son or daughter is destined to sin because of their parents. What it means is the Lord visits every successive generation to see if the son or daughter of that generation is following in their earthly parents' footsteps or in their heavenly father's footsteps. He doesn't come to the next generation and go, okay, let's, let's... Let's punish this kid because he's going to do what his dad did. No, he comes and he visits, the Bible says. It's the same word, by the way, visit. The Lord visits the sin to the next generation that David uses in Psalm 8 when he says, Lord, who is man that you visit him? Who am I that you would come and see me and have contact with me? That's what that verse is talking about. Now, quickly, turn over to Ezekiel chapter 18. We've gone to this verse before. It is so important to hear the heart of the Father. And it explains, I believe, Exodus 20 and 34. Ezekiel 18, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Saying, quote, The fathers eat sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. So that whole proverb was about that, that the people in Israel were believing that the sins of the Father were now passed along and carried and borne by the children. And God says, As I live, verse 3, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins will die. But if a man is righteous, and practices justice and righteousness, and does not eat at the mountain shrines, or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, or defile his neighbor's wife, or approach a woman during her menstrual period, if a man does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with clothing, if he does not lend money on interest, or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity, and executes true justice between man and man, If he walks in my statutes and my ordinances, so as to deal faithfully. I don't know about you, but are you getting exhausted just hearing the list? If I do all these things, Lord, I'm already tired. I haven't even stepped out the door. It says, He is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord. If he does all these things, skip down to verse 19. Yet you say, why should the son not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity? And the Lord says, when the son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. Now tune in, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity Nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself And the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself Now you may say that still sounds tough How can I possibly practice justice and righteousness And observe all of God's statutes And you know the answer gang You can't I can't For Amnon, tomorrow did not matter. Only the now. Only the immediate. Only the lust. Getting it filled. Feeding that hunger. And the Bible says, the world is passing away and also its lusts. So that choice is a temporary choice that is passing away. But contrast the lust of the flesh with the love of the Father. Because in Exodus chapter 20, verse 6, it tells us the Father shows loving kindness. To thousands, literally, of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments, the Father shows chesed. He shows grace. He gives that grace to those who would turn toward Him and believe in Him. The Father loves you. The Father loves me. That's the issue. It's not, parents, how did I mess up my kids? The, the issue is God loves you. He loves you with an everlasting, eternal love that will not end. It's not, how did my parents mess me up? Look what my mom and dad did to our family. No. You take your eyes off of that and you recognize the Father loves you with an eternal love you might say man I want that love but I don't know how to deal with the sins of my father I don't know how to deal with what my kids are choosing to do I don't know how to deal even with the lust I'm struggling with right now and here's how you deal with it gang you make the choice the Bible's very clear you make a choice in Ezekiel you choose righteousness or you choose wickedness and if you choose righteousness then that will be upon you if you choose wickedness That will be upon you. You've got to make the choice. Revelation 22 verse 10 says the time is near. And listen to this. I love just the clarity here. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Why, Jesus? Because I am coming quickly. I am coming soon. Here's how you make the choice. Here's how you begin to replace the love of the flesh with the, lo- the lust of the flesh with the love of the Father. How by looking forward. This, this hit me like a ton of bricks this week. Once again, I get caught back into this place of end times living, of last day's life. Oh, Rick, you keep bringing up this stuff because it changes us. Because if I recognize That any moment Jesus may appear To call me home It really puts a damper On lust I think about There's a table That Cheryl and I Are looking at That we'd like to buy A dining room table It's one of those tall ones You know Which I like being tall You know But they also have tall chairs So Cheryl can climb up And she can sit there too But we're looking at this table We were down at the Costco home show yesterday The home store looking at these Just different tables And thinking about them The second I think, but what if Jesus comes this afternoon? We would have wasted all this money on this table. (laughs) I know that's a silly example. But as you're living life and you're thinking about the choices you have in front of you, if you know Jesus may be here any moment, doesn't that impact your choices? Doesn't the lust of the world seem empty and vapid and useless? Because it's going to be gone like that. And the love of the Father, oh, wow. God loves me with an eternal love and you're telling me that even as early as in the next breath He could be here and I'm in that. That's what I want to live for. That's where I want to be. It's the only thing I know that effectively replaces the lust for life with love that's eternal and that's anticipation. Because anticipation overcomes lust. Anticipation just drives it out of my mind. John said it this way, 1 John 3, 2. We know when he appears, we'll be like him. Because we'll see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. Amnon was as impure as you get, because all he could think about was fulfilling his lust with Tamar. He didn't want to marry her. He didn't want to do right by her. He didn't care about her at all. But she was beautiful, and he knew he could get something if he could get her alone. It was all about the moment. If Amnon even had the slightest idea of the kind of love that was eternally coming, waiting for him, it would have changed everything. But it was all about the now. You want to get rid of the sins of your fathers? You want to be free of the stuff that your parents did that still impacts you today? You want to walk away from the lust of the flesh? You want to be free from that, that guilt that hangs over you parents especially of grown children as you look at their lives and go you want to be rid of all that stuff love the father love the father love the father and you won't bear so much bitterness toward your own earthly father because I have a father and I realize that that man is a sinner just like me and he has the same father I do Love the Father Love the Father Look for His coming Live in that full expectation The early church man That's how they lived every day You read Peter's writings And Paul's and John's They're constantly talking about The imminent The immediate return of Jesus The very beginning of the book of Acts What is it the apostles Ask Jesus when they're there Just before He ascends They say Is it now that you're going to Restore the kingdom to Israel? You know what Jesus does? He doesn't say, nah, that's a couple thousand years away. He says, it's not for you to know. Why did he do that? Jesus, why not tell them? It's 2,000 years. you got plenty of time. So you guys buckle down and work the truth and get the word out there. you got 2,000 years of time to do this. He didn't. He said, don't worry about that. And he left them with the sense that he would be back any day in the first 30 years of the church. That's how they lived every day this week he may be back he just left you remember we just saw him ascend he was just here and he said he's coming back and they lived with that constant sense of his imminent return he's got to be here any moment and that attitude allowed the early church to love to love the father and that attitude we are called upon to have ourselves the only difference right now between us and the early church is we have 2,000 years behind us We still have no idea what's in front of us, And Paul says, Now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. Love the Father. And look for His coming. Set aside the world and all its earthly lusts because it's passing away. Amen. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Father, that You even included stories like the lustful story of Amnon and this sad rape of his sister Tamar. And we know in reading this story, it was heartbreaking to David. We know, Lord, it was heartbreaking to you. And we're saddened to see how David did nothing about it. But we can relate and we understand. And Father, it is my deep prayer that we will come to know your love for us so much that it frees us of that paralyzing guilt. That Father, it frees us from winking the eye or compressing the lips when it comes to the truth. May we be so in love with you, Lord, that every step of every moment of every day be a step of wondering how quickly you're going to be back, of looking for your immediate return. And loving people with that in mind, it could be any moment. Father, remove and replace the lust of the flesh with the love of the Father. Bless this fellowship today, Father, and may we be made righteous and whole through the blood of Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.